0: hi guys welcome to the church split my name is will and you guys know what we do here we help you escape your church's echo chamber learn to think biblically and of course challenge the status quo which always needs challenging uh but today guys um i have a very special guest with me today and i'm extremely excited to have this conversation uh i have the one and the only dr timothy mcgrew here i am uh one of the reasons why i'm really excited about this is because him and his wife uh dr lydia mcgrew have been an ardent force in, in a way, uh, in when it deals with the resurrection debate and new Testament historicity and all that. And it's kind of cool because they're literally like 45 minutes from my house. I'm part of the talk about doubts team. And we had a really neat thing, uh, this last summer where, uh, names like that you probably are familiar with, like Yo and Bignon were there and, uh, it was really neat. And also that's when I realized when I walked into the room that I was way below my uh my, i was way below as far as everyone else everyone else was like intellectually way up here uh and i'm over there just like uh feed me anything <laughs> um it was a really great experience but with that being said uh dr tim mcgrew how are you doing today i am doing great well good to be on Awesome. Uh, I'm really excited to have you here. As I mentioned, um, you got your guys's work has been really influential to me. And of course, my good friend David Paulman. Uh, you are like his all time favorite. So I cannot wait to it, uh, rub it into him that I had you on my channel. <laughs> so um, sorry. Uh, it just, it just comes with the territory uh, in a world of nerds, uh, who's your favorite nerd, right? So, uh, <laughs> now, uh, Dr. Uh, Doctor McGrew, um, what, can you tell a little, the audience a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do?
1: Sure. I am a professor of philosophy at Western Michigan University. I've been there for a long time, uh, more than 27 years now. I've been teaching philosophy. I did my tour of duty as chairman of the department and was honorably discharged and have no intention of going back to that administrative role. I enjoy teaching a lot more than I enjoy committee I enjoy committee meetings. And so that's just the way that that's gotta go. But uh, yeah, I teach courses in philosophy. I specialize in the theory of knowledge, the history and philosophy of science, uh, the philosophy of religion and the history of philosophy of religion and then uh, little technical things like formal logic, probability theory, and on the side, I really enjoy games of pure strategy like chess and go. I am a, an amateur uh, runner and martial artist, and I make killer paper airplanes.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Especially the paper airplanes part. Um, I, you'll have to teach me a few things there. Uh, I'm terrible at them. Mine never fly straight. <laughs> we can we can fix this. Uh, it's very good. I'm glad. Uh, so, uh, with that being said, uh, so that's so you might in the world of philosophy. Might know what you're talking about a little bit maybe a little bit
1: sure hope so if if, if i don't by this time i am probably too old to learn
0: fair enough all right so um now there is this other thing that you do so you're really involved in apologetics uh, Not, mm-hmm. ph- i mean philosophy but you're also involved in apologetics uh mm-hmm. my first introduction to you was uh i seen your name around but was actually in your debate with dr bart airman Uh, the Mm -hmm. famed agnostic-leaning atheist who believes that uh, the Gospels are not historically reliable and so uh i specifically actually requested online i was like can someone find me a debate where bart Ehrman gets spanked i'm getting tired of it and uh somebody sent it to me like you need to listen to his debate with dr tim mcgrew then (laughs) And and i i very much enjoyed it um so with that being said uh what is your how did you get involved in apologetics what are some of the things you've done in the field of apologetics
1: I was uh, raised in a Christian home, wonderful Christian parents. My dad was a Bible college professor. And like many young people around the end of high school, I went through that period where I said, this is all very nice and the people that I know who are Christians are wonderful, but now I need to know whether it's true. And so I began ransacking the library of the college where my father worked. It was just up the hill from our house. I could walk there. and. Uh, I would be buried up to my elbows in books and just reading and reading and reading and reading. I I would be the last guy in the library on a Friday night. Uh, not much of a social life, but I read a lot. <laughs> and uh, I I found some works of apologetics among the other things, as well as works of what you might call anti-apologetics, and read them all. Uh, so you know George Smith's Atheism: The Case Against God and The Atheist Debater's Handbook and Gary Habermas, Antony Flew debate on the resurrection, and William Lane Craig on the Kalam cosmological argument. It was all there. And so I just chewed through a large portion of the library. And uh, I came away actually very strongly persuaded that the historical evidence for Christianity was really strong, much stronger than I had realized it was before I began searching. At the same time, I was becoming deeply interested in the theory of knowledge and the philosophy of science. And I wanted to go on and do work in that, so I, I went to Vanderbilt University and did a doctorate in epistemology. Good time, had a great time working in that field, and uh, then came out the other end and thought, hey, this is great. I have a PhD. You know, this now I can do all this wonderful stuff. And I had students who said, oh, that's great. I'll uh, I'll tell my pastor we should have you in our church. If I had thought about it a little bit, maybe I would have realized that this could be a hard sell, right? The, the student goes to the pastor and says, oh, pastor, here's this philosophy professor at my state university. Can we have him speak in church? Probably not likely to get a reception. Whatever, it was uh, about a decade and a half before I got asked to speak in any church. Wow. But during that decade and a half, I learned a lot. I was doing reading, and I thought I had done my reading in apologetics, and wow, uh, was I wrong. About 98% of what I consider the most important stuff that I now know, I learned after I got my doctorate and thought I knew so much. So yeah, so much for that. Um, the credential is not everything, is it? But I, Eventually I did the the stupid thing that you read about. Sometimes I I prayed about it. I was like, Lord, I I can't sell myself. I don't know what I'm doing there. If you want me to speak somewhere here in my own state, would you just please open some doors? A month later, I've got three invitations lined up without my doing anything. So yeah, just pray and then back away from the doorway because things are going to come flying through. It's really wild. But uh, since that time I've spoken, uh, maybe, I don't know, a hundred times around the world in, you know, in London and in Germany and other places, had a, a lot of opportunities to speak. Some, uh, some college campuses. I've spoken at MIT. Um, had some good opportunities to work with groups, big and small. Uh, my, I'm not a big time operator. So my theory is, if I'm too busy to sit down with one guy in a coffee shop and have a conversation, I'm too busy. I'm not trying to say anything wrong with people who work on a different scale, but. I need to be small scale. That's, no, that's how I want to work on it.
0: That's perfectly fair. Cause that's one of the things I've thought about as well. Um, and actually I had a good conversation with a, a friend of mine, Jordan Ferrier. He's kind of like a mentor to me uh, in many ways mm-hmm. and a good friend. And he sat and yesterday, actually, he's like, well, do me a favor, take irons out of your fire. And that's, and that was what he told me. He's like, if you want to focus on something, focus on something and make it good and, you know, mm-hmm. be invested in people at the same time. He's like, don't, to say, and that was actually a fun convicting conversation I had yesterday. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I do need to take some irons out of the fire, That things that aren't doing me any good. So that's a really, that's a, a great point, you know, and that's one of the things actually uh, I can honestly say that when I first met you guys, I was shocked by the hospitality because in my mind, I guess in the apologetics world, I'm like, these are the McGrews. Don't you know who you're talking to? And you guys are like, I oh, just sit down, ha- hang out. Let's have a fun conversation. Absolutely, was- Yeah. And then you're like here's my number and i was like are you serious like that's really cool so um and that does that goes to show the fact that you are actually trying to live up to exactly what you're saying so that is really uh that is really interesting though with uh because that's kind of uh i wasn't buried into my elbows uh, at the library keeping them late on a friday night but uh i was definitely i was actually a pastor and that's how i got involved in apologetics was I was a young man who was passionate about theology until I started getting asked good questions. Why do you know Christianity is true compared to everyone else? And I knew the basics, like everything that begins to exist must have a cause, you know, the design of the universe. But I didn't realize even what was at the surface. And I still think I am like only uh, a little bit deeper than the surface. I know there's a way deeper well I need to continue to go down. And however, I didn't realize how not just that we had good reasons to be Christians, but we have great reasons to be Christian a lot of evidence comes to it. Now, when it comes to apologetics, there are different methodologies, right? There's presuppositional apologetics. There's classical apologetics. And like when I'm giving a presentation at a church, I tend to give it a very classical sense because I'm like, all right, mm-hmm. I have 45 minutes. So classical is kind of my approach. However, I would consider myself an apologetics, what's called an evidentialist, and I know you you would agree with that. Now, would you be able to explain what is evidentialism and why do you think that's important? Right. So this gets defined in some slightly different ways, in different
1: contexts. And I guess the first thing I want to say, since you've mentioned a couple of other categories, is that I consider what is known as the classical apologetic approach to be a species of evidentialism. I think it's a kind of evidentialism, not some totally different animal opposed to it. Uh, In its broadest sense, evidentialism is the position that the proper apologetic methodology is to bring forth evidence that Christianity is true, and then to address and engage with, and when one can answer, objections that are raised in the form of evidence that Christianity is false, and say, okay, but here's why I don't think that works, or I think that that's outweighed by this other consideration, and so forth. So at its most basic level, it's giving reasons in the sense of reasons that we all usually mean when we're talking about having reasons. We have a sense of what it means for the doctor to have a reason to make a diagnosis, for the guy who fixes your garage door to have a reason to say, this is only a temporary repair. You know, just (laughs) everyday reasons that we understand. There are such things as good reasons. There are patterns of reasoning. And when we understand what we're doing, then we can be persuasive for those who have ears to hear. There are always people who aren't listening. But for those who have ears to hear, we can show them why these things are credible. Not everybody is interested in that at first. Maybe they think Christianity is wicked, and so if you persuade them that it's true, it'll just drive them to despair, right? (laughs) So you do. we have multiple jobs that we have to do, but evidentialism is a position that the best way to defend the faith is to present evidence that it is true. Right, It may and, uh, not be the only task that we have, but it is a task.
0: Right. And this goes into, and I, I don't want to park on this for too long, but there are a couple different approaches on how people will go about demonstrating evidence for it. So, of course, there's philosophical arguments, you know, the moral argument, the Kalam, the mm-hmm. Telio, uh, and then there's also um, ways of defending the resurrection. One is that a very popular one called the Minimal Facts Approach, uh, made popular mm-hmm. by those like Mike Lycona and Gary Habermas, uh, mm-hmm. and then you guys are fans of the Maximal Data Approach, and you guys mm-hmm. were my first exposure to the Maximal Data Approach, and it just, already, I, I mean, just, can we just talk about where rhetoric for a second on a rhetorical level the maximal data approach already sounds better right like do you want minimal or do you want maximal well i want maximal yeah. all right like in, on a rhetorical level already is on is already winning
1: <laughs> right you're, you're at the apologetics drive through it you say supersize me for sure
0: yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> so um now what would you think are, are some like uh examples of good evidence for the christian faith
1: So I like to break it up into categories of Mm -hmm. evidence. Some of the things that you mentioned are evidence that'll take you a certain distance, right? The Kalam cosmological argument about the beginning of the physical universe or teleological arguments, design arguments, or the moral argument or the argument from consciousness. And those all get you a certain distance, but where they won't take you is into the specifics of Mm -hmm. Christianity, Right. right? Okay. There is a creator to the universe, very powerful, Romans 1 kind of stuff. All good. Are my sins forgiven? Well, we're going to have to go specifically into the Christian scriptures here to get a a read on that. We're going to have to then justify appealing to those scriptures. So I like to say that we can divide the evidence uh, for Christianity into external evidence and internal evidence. Uh, External evidence is have to do with sort of the broad scale things, existence of God, problem of evil would be on the negative side there. The internal stuff has to do with the trustworthiness of scripture, answering objections to scripture. And within the class of internal evidences, we can then look at things within scripture and the argument from undesigned coincidences is a good example of that. And we can look at external confirmations and say, when there are chances to test this against what we know from outside of the Bible altogether, what do we see? What do we find here? And it turns out that we can find quite a lot. And the more so when the geographic canvas on which the story is being told expands. So when you move outside the narrow strip of Palestine, which is where almost all the action takes place in the Gospels, outside of you know Matthew chapter 2, and you move into the book of Acts, suddenly you're all over Asia Minor and up through you know, Macedonia and down the Greek peninsula and you're hitting islands in the Aegean or the yeah, the Aegean Sea, or you're passing through the Aegean Sea, you're hitting islands in the Mediterranean. You're all over, right? That well now we have a whole bunch of external evidence there because the canvas is wider and there are a lot more places we can check for archaeological evidence, coins minted in certain places, uh, things of that kind. So yeah, this is uh that's the sort of external, external evidence, not just the, uh, the general evidence, but now looking at non-Christian sources and seeing to what extent we can corroborate things, test things against them. And that's a wonderful source of evidence. So there are these big categories. Once you get the categories down, um, and the undesigned coincidences are only one kind of internal evidence. There are other kinds. There's the unity of the portrayal of characters. There are unexplained allusions. There are reconcilable variations. There are whole categories of internal evidence as well. And so, once you come to get a couple of those in your head, and you start realizing, "Wow, there's there's like so much here," then it becomes really exciting, and you want to learn more about it, and you want to study up on it. And so, but I I tell people it can be a little daunting because mm-hmm. when we say maximal, there's there's a lot out there, but the difference between having none of this in your repertoire and having one thing is more important than the difference between having one thing and having 100. Because if you don't have any evidence, you're not in the conversation. Mm. Somebody wants evidence says to you, why should I believe that any of this stuff is true? Uh, I got news for you. I feel it in my heart is the answer Mormons give when they're asked that about the Book of Mormon.
0: A burning of it's
1: It's just not going to distinguish you from a whole bunch of cults and fringy groups and everything. So you're going to have to have something. If you have something, you're at least in the conversation. So get from zero to one and then time enough to worry about getting from one to two, from two to three. But get just get started. That's my take home message to people who say, this is all new. What should I do?
0: Right. Absolutely. And that's kind of what I started doing because once I when I got into the apologetics realm, I remember I was overwhelmed because there is so many I and mean, there's terminologies thrown around. In fact, I get messages regularly, in emails like I really like your show, but sometimes I have no idea what you guys are talking about. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. "Ooh, big words. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, and that's kind of the thing. It can almost be overwhelming when you first get involved. And I'm like, hey, look. And I just tell people, like, I understand that we kind of use these words flippantly anymore. We don't always, some of the things that I think are common terminology really are not. So maybe right. just look into one. Okay. All right. I, I don't, that's like, that's 16 of them, but maybe just look into one, get clarification of what that is and what that means. And even like the argument for undesigned coincidences, which your wife has a great book on Uh it, just mm-hmm. seeing how the, how there's weird little parts in the gospels that there's a coincidence that connects them historically, but it's undesigned and it's almost boring in the way it's delivered. And it's not like it's trying to highlight it. You just have to pay attention to it. I've been a pastor for 10 years and even when I read those, right. And that means I've, I've preached the word multiple times a week, read these, broke these down historically, culturally context, blah, blah, blah. Never once noticed half of those things that were brought up Mm -hmm. and it's just, Things that you want to notice but they really do validate on eyewitness testimony writing these down so if you guys don't uh if you guys haven't already who are listening check out the argument for undesigned coincidences uh and look up dr lydia mcgrew's book um h- called hidden in plain view right hidden plain view
1: yep and you could put a link in the show notes if you want later should yep. we do an example for your
0: listeners yeah let's do that real quick go ahead so yeah um
1: let's go to matthew chapter 14. Uh, this tells the story of the death of John the Baptist, and there's a setup to it. The setting, the frame occurs after John the Baptist has died, and Jesus and his disciples have begun baptizing people in the Jordan River. Sounds familiar, right? And Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee, freaks out. He says, what is going on here? I had John killed, Like what? Is this ghost? Is he back from the dead? What's going on? So he turns to his servants and he says, "Uh, "What? What is this? What, What? What's going on with this?" And what's curious about that is just three words there, to his servants. Those three words aren't found in any of the other accounts in the other gospels of the death of John the Baptist. So you're reading along and you're like, "Okay, fine, good," and you keep moving, but. If you're reading really thoughtfully, you might hit a little speed bump there and say, how does Matthew know what Herod Antipas is saying to his servants? Matthew used to be a tax collector. Now he's a traveling preacher. How does he find out what's going on in the privacy of Herod's palace? This is curious. Now, maybe the answer is we don't know. There are a lot of things historically where we have only a single source, and that's fine, and we don't necessarily doubt it. But you know what your skeptical friend is going to say, right? Mm Mm-hmm it's a novel! He's just making it up to add a little color to the scene. And wouldn't it be interesting if we could give a plausible answer to the question, how would Matthew know? Well, you can't find it by reading around in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Go back into chapter 13, keep plowing through 14, not going to find it. But if you hop over to Luke chapter 8, not the story of the death of John the Baptist, it's just a list of people who supported the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. And in verse three, it mentions that one of these people was Joanna. Okay, Joanna. And then it has a little thumbnail sketch bio of her. She's the wife of Chusa. Great, who's Chusa. He never gets mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But then it just pauses to tell you that Chusa is Herod's household manager, his steward. (laughs) Oh, Jesus followers have family in the highest ranks of Herod's servants. And now it's not a mystery how Matthew could know what Herod is saying to his servants. In fact, Herod may have asked his servants because he knew that some of them were connected with this Jesus thing that was going on. And he may have expected that they had some inside information. So now it's not a mystery at all. Now, one of those things like that, one connection like that, you could say that could be an accident. Um, but when you get dozens of them put together, it's like assembling a jigsaw puzzle. At a certain point, you're, you're pretty sure these are the pieces that go together, right? Uh, you, you, you see the, the puppy's eye and his nose and part of an ear, and you're saying, yeah, I'm on the right track. I'm, I'm not just putting things together randomly here. So this is the way that the argument from Undesigned Coincidence is. You see these connections crisscrossing Gospels in all directions. John explains things in the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels explain things in John. Things in one Synoptic Gospel, like Matthew, get explained by things in another one, like Luke here. So it's really a very persuasive argument. This is not, as I sometimes say when I'm doing this, which of these authors copied from the other one? And of course, it's <laughs> a trick question because I'm a professor, right? The answer is no, neither of them. It, and that's obvious. Uh, and if you run into somebody who insists that they did, this is just somebody who can't read. I mean, this. the more you can read, the more you realize this kind of casual answering of the natural question we had elsewhere, That's the rig of truth.
0: Right. And And that happens. Oh, no, go ahead.
1: This is just one example of one category of internal evidence. And there are, you know, in Lydia's book, there are dozens more. And so, and she went through, by the way, she did all the textual comparison. So looking at text families and saying, well, could somebody complain that you can't get this one out of this text family, only out of that text family? So they could quibble about whether that wording is really in the original. And she set aside ones that she couldn't see were bulletproof. So there are even more out there, but these are the ones that are really, its you've really gotta be trying hard to try to get around this as a, ca- a class of evidence that these people are. And so what does it show us? These people are close up to the facts and they're habitually truthful. That's what we're looking for. We want authors who are close to the facts and have the habit of telling the truth. And so that's what the argument delivers. And it does it pretty convincingly. When you add the pieces together, you get more and more and more of these.
0: Which kind of goes into that whole, like, I've been told by a family member of mine who is, uh, you could say, not, not uh, open-eared on this topic. And uh, this family member said that, well, there's just no primary sources for the New Testament. I was like, the entire New Testament is a primary source. All of them, all of them are different writers. And they're like, no, 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 we just have original manuscripts. So there's no primary source. I'm like, uh, we don't have that with any his ancient historical document. So what you're asking for is to make a historical exception for the claims of the new Testament. And when you actually compare these, they actually fall suit exactly what you would expect from eyewitnesses who are recording things. If, uh, you actually, uh, if we did our talk about doubts meeting that we did this last summer mm-hmm. and you, me. Uh, your wife and Guillaume because I like to say his name uh, all wrote down what we did that day we would all write a very similar account but there might be weird little details that are clarified in each other's that we just kind of put in there without highlighting just kind of mentioning and well why is that well we found out over here in this account and that's what that's literally what detectives do that is part of Uh, a crime scene investigation and, and the Mm -hmm. field of forensics. That's all what they're trying to do is piece together evidence based on testimonies, based on physical evidence to come up with the best explanation and to sit there. And after I read like this, this argumentation, when I read up on it, I realized that in it is actually one of the most difficult things for people to try to discount afterwards that these were not eyewitnesses who are habitually telling the truth. It makes it extremely difficult because mm-hmm. well, then how do you explain all of these? Now you don't have to just explain one, you have to explain dozens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now you just have to try to discount them as people themselves and just say they're all crazy and somehow in on it. But even then, these details shouldn't fit together. So anyhow, yeah, that's a that's a great uh, uh, that's a great um, example, actually, of that. So I usually like to use the Passover with the green grass. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so for those of you guys who don't know, look that up. Look that up. Uh, undesigned coincidences, Passover, green get, green grass and the feeding of the 5000. Once you look that up, you'll come back and let us know what you think. Uh, so um, that was actually one of the things that I was in a, in a meeting with Dr. McClatchy, and he one mm-hmm. of the things he said was, this person was like, well, I just don't think it's okay for people to use the Bible to prove the Bible. And he goes, can I show you how you can use the Bible to prove the Bible? And so instead of running away from me, he's like, actually, let me actually push you with this evidence a little bit. Uh, And I thought that was right. Of of
1: course, the way that it's said, right, use the Bible to prove the Bible makes it sound like it's going to be some kind of simple circle. Mm -hmm. But what's being done here is we're saying these are features that are in the text, whether Mm -hmm. you think antecedently that the text is reliable or not. They are features that are in it and they are hard to explain away if you want to work with a hypothesis that the text is not a very reliable account of what actually went down. right? And so we get this in secular history. We do this kind of thing as well. I can send you seven or eight examples from works, not in religious fields where authors talk about evidence for things like, you know, the, the doings of Harold's brother Tostig at the just before the Battle of Hastings, or other kinds of things like that—they're not religious topics—and they point to things and they say this is an undesigned coincidence. They use the the phrase and they appeal to it as evidence in secular history. So this is not just something that earnest fundamentalists cooked up to try to make sure that everybody agreed with them. This is just good methodology,
0: right? I mean, that's like like we were saying, like this is exactly what we're supposed to do when we're trying to weigh evidences for anything, any sort of testimony. So yeah. um, now this, of course, this is all part of evidentialism, right? Being, believe that mm-hmm. there's evidence and that evidence can be examined and weighed upon against other ev- counter evidences and seeing which one is uh, most likely to be true, if that's a mm-hmm. good way to put that. So yeah. this means also one must be able to know things. One must be able to, mm-hmm. Think and consider and actually be able to internally, uh, internally at least in some way, shape, or form, measure evidence. So that's a little play on words I was doing there. You have to forgive my dad jokes. They're really, really bad. Uh so and this was a setting you up for now, you said you got your PhD in epistemology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh now what in the world is something like epistemology?
1: Right, so it's not the collection of bugs. I know a lot of people who think that it must be something like that, but that's entomology. Epistemology is the, uh, the theory of knowledge. It's the study of the concepts that we use when we talk about what we know and of the forms of reasoning that we use. And it attempts to address certain, many of them very ancient, skeptical objections that say, nah, you don't really know what you think you know. And so this is, I think, something that is undervalued a lot in Christian circles. People think that they can just go out and do all kinds of things without having any understanding of how we reason and what it means to reason well. And I do not mean to say, that every pastor has to go out now and get a PhD in philosophy. Blessings on those few of you who do want to do that, but that's a special calling, right? That's not something that everyone is called to do. However, if you want to go into apologetics, you have to do at least something with coming to terms with understanding knowledge, understanding its structures. One of the things that you mentioned was that when you've got a whole bunch of arguments that all kind of point in the same direction. You have to dismiss the body of them. Let me go a step beyond that. Suppose I've got just one very long, rigorous argument that's put together like a proof out of Euclid's geometry, right, the elements of geometry. And it's like links in a chain, and everything depends on all the other stuff. And if everything works, then it holds up. That's a really interesting kind of argument. But if you make a mistake in any step, then you haven't proved your case. Hmm. In fact, the very first proof in Euclid's Elements has this microscopic logical gap in it that people didn't notice for a long time. And it took David Hilbert at the end of the 19th century, right, a couple millennia later To come along and say all right we can add this postulate and make it more rigorous this way so when you have an argument that's sort of lockstep every step deductively as we say follows from the previous one but that's your structure then every link in the chain is absolutely essential consider the difference between that an accumulative argument like the argument from undesigned coincidences, where there are numerous different pieces of contributing evidence that are all pointing the same direction. If somebody says, wait a minute, I found an objection to the 17th piece of evidence that you used that added to this case, you can actually say, you know what, bracket that. For the sake of the argument, I don't need to insist upon it. still got all the other pieces. It's more like a trampoline. You can have some strand of the fabric that separates in a trampoline, but you've got 10,000 others there that are all holding it together. So, you know, if somebody quibbles about this particular strand, oh, they found one thing with a flaw, all the others are still there. This is robustness in an argument where you can say it doesn't even depend upon, you know, I, I happen to think that they all have some force, but it doesn't even depend upon my insisting this one, this one must be true. Uh, You can pick the ones that you find the most persuasive and you have a cumulative case with multiple lines of evidence pointing the same direction that weaves a tough safety net beneath your beliefs. And that is why I have come actually to prefer giving arguments that are cumulative in structure like that. And we don't need to go into the mathematics of it. The math of it is very beautiful. It's glorious. I love to teach about it in seminars. Your listeners do not need the math right now. 99% of the other 1% will send them off to a probability theory class. But the, the general idea is one that we all understand where you have a lot of pieces of evidence pointing in the same direction. It becomes obtuse to demand something else. This is what good evidence looks like.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to epistemology, then, which is, of course, the theory of knowledge or the study of knowledge, how do you know that, you know, Uh, and uh, and for people who don't know or have not looked into the field of epistemology at all? Yes, these are the sorts of questions that are being asked. Um, and how do you know what you know? Do you know what you know? Are you justified in knowing something? Can you be justified in knowing something at all? All sorts of stuff. Um, right. In fact, uh, I, I am what we call, uh, in a, I'm an evidentialist and I am also, I agree with Dr. Tim McGrew. I'm an internalist. Uh, John DePoe does a great job at, uh, defending it, uh, in a s- series of essays, but, I actually got in a discussion with another person recently, um, and he was telling me that, uh, epistemologists and philosophers have gotten rid of the idea of a justified true belief and, uh, was definitely making very strong claims. Uh, I would say a lot of bravado, not a lot of substance, but, uh, what the, so the thing is here is when I say, so in epistemology study of knowledge, uh, you are an internalist. Uh, what is an internalist and why do you think that applies to apologetics?
1: Okay, so as simply as I can do in a few words
0: and acknowledging,
1: (laughs) acknowledging that there are a lot of finesses here that will be of most interest only to the people who already know about them, I would say very broadly to be an internalist about knowledge is to believe that the thing that separates mere true belief from knowledge is evidence and reasons that you have some level of access to. They are internal to your own uh, mental epistemic state. You might not be thinking about them explicitly at the time, but they're there. And with a sufficient amount of self-reflection, you can sometimes even pull these up and say, oh, that's what I was doing. So I'll give you an example. I, uh, years ago when i taught out at washington state i was across the border in moscow idaho on a rainy evening got out of my car at some kind of store a kmart or a target or something like that and it was dark it was rainy i started heading straight toward the store now a few spots away from where i parked there was a car in that dark wide parking lot and then quite a bit further away there was a tall lamppost that was shedding illumination over the parking lot. I had my back to both of them because I was heading inside. I don't like being in the rain. I don't know about you, but like, I'm not one of these second in the rain kind of people. I want to get out (laughs) of the rain. And I hadn't taken six steps before I was suddenly absolutely confident that the buzzing noise was coming from the lamppost rather than from the somewhat nearer car. The strength of my conviction actually intrigued me, like, why am I so sure of this? It's not like I did any set of explicit steps. But because it caught my attention right there, I was able to reconstruct what it was that I was giving to. As I was moving toward the store, walking briskly, the noise level was not dropping off very quickly. I had easily doubled my distance from that parked car, just in those few steps and that should have cut the noise level by a factor of four but it wasn't dropping off like that i had not very significantly increased my distance from the lamppost from the point where i had just gotten out of my car and so that's what i was picking up on that's why i was sure it was coming from farther away because the noise was still nearly as loud after i'd taken those half dozen steps as it was when i first got out of my car now I was picking up on things that lay within my field of awareness. I heard the noise, right? And I heard the noise after taking the steps. And I was able to do a mental comparison of the noise levels and they weren't changing very much. Those are factors that lay within my awareness. I didn't reason them out verbally. We rarely do. Boy, would driving be even more fun than it is now if everybody had to go through some kind of verbal process of argument to decide whether (laughs) this is the point at which to turn off onto the exit ramp. Uh, I think people, maybe, maybe that explains something actually. Maybe people are trying to do that. But this is the kind of thing that we think about and we say, okay, these are factors that were within my field of awareness. The reasoning may have been to some extent tacit, but it's there. And sometimes we are able to reconstruct the steps. Um, sounds a little Sherlock Holmesy, And maybe it is, though, if your readers haven't heard about this yet, uh, maybe this will be news to some people. But the most famous fictional character in the English language, doubtless Sherlock Holmes, is based on a real person. Did you know this?
0: I actually did know this.
1: Ah, uh, So his name is Dr. Joseph Bell. And Conan Doyle, when he took his medical degree, became the outpatient clerk for Dr. Bell. And he saw Bell do feats of inference that just blew his mind. And in the year when he became Bell's outpatient clerk, Eugene Chantrell was hanged in England for the murder of his wife. And it was Joseph Bell who had done the detective work that brought him to conviction and and brought down the death sentence on him so real life detection nice so
0: um now so that of course then the question is so now that you're dealing with of course like okay is how my reasoning works why is it these things uh you know some of these things are like you said they're tacit they're things that you might not even be aware of
1: but you're aware in some sense but you're not processing it all verbally and
0: laying it all out in premises and that's fine right Right, right. So now, how do you think that sort of thing, because as an internalist, it means that you believe that you have basically the capabilities to make these sorts of calls and judgments to, and I'm explaining this very rudimentary, by the way, so apologies. But uh, as an epistemologist, correct me anywhere you feel uh, like you need to, but um, being able that we internally even have the ability to reason to uh, reach certain conclusions uh, based on Mm -hmm. evidences. How do you think this uh, relates to apologetics and why Christians should at least have some form of understanding in this field uh, and how do you think this uh is uh how this sizes up to uh the obviously very uh th- very popular things like the externalist position or things like Plantinga
1: right so Plantinga is a, a Christian philosopher formidably brilliant man who's done a lot of interesting work unfortunately he is an externalist he's a special kind of externalist it's a kind of an unusual version of it but in the end it is a version of what we call reliable process externalism so i can give you sort of the quick version and it it runs like this um let's suppose that benevolent aliens have stumbled upon our little planet here out of the way halfway to the rim of the Milky Way, and they are, with a cloaking device, of course, in orbit above Earth, and they decide they'd like to experiment a little, but remember, they're benevolent. So what they're going to do is they're going to give Will a whole string of brand-new beliefs, which he doesn't yet have, about nuclear physics. And so you're going to wake up, you wake up tomorrow morning, and you find yourself with a very strong conviction that a certain piece of mathematics is the correct mathematics to describe the ground state of such and such an isotope of oxygen. So as much to your surprise as to anybody else as you find yourself suddenly saying these things about nuclear physics, right? Now, because they're benevolent, what they're giving you are true beliefs. They're priming you with true beliefs because they wouldn't really mess with you by making you believe things falsely. All right. So here you are, you wake up, you're like, why do I have this strong conviction about the ground state of oxygen? Question, does that thing that you're now contemplating that you find yourself believing, does that count as knowledge? On an externalist account, it very well might. It is, after all, produced by a mechanism which, we've stipulated is highly reliable. These aliens know what they're doing and they're not trying to give you false beliefs. And so you're kind of connected up to reality in a cause and effect sort of way. And yet a lot of us would say, whoa, uh, hold it, stop, but I don't have any reasons whatsoever for what I'm saying. You don't have reasons, you have causes. Causes and reasons can come apart. And in this case, they do. You know, if you take that belief down to your friend in the department of physics and you start chatting with him and he's like actually yeah and if you have a bunch more and every time you go and you check with the experts and they're right you might develop a track record after that you might say well it seems like for whatever reason i'm sort of latching onto some truths about physics but the very first time it hits you just because you suddenly feel persuaded but you can't there's nothing that you can point to as evidence. No matter how long you reflect, there's nothing buried in there that is evidence for it. The internalist will say, son, you are lucky that they're benevolent, but you do not have knowledge. And the externalist will say, well, sure you have knowledge. That's the point at which they come apart. One of the reasons that I think is very important for Christians to take what I think is the common sense view of internalism is that, At a certain point, we are going to be asked why we believe what we believe. Mm -hmm. It may come in the form of an earnest inquiry from some young seeker. uh, Maybe, you know, somebody who wandered away from the religion of his youth, and now he's in his 20s, and he's being mugged by 19th century Russian novels and saying, oh, I read Dostoevsky, and now I have questions. (laughs) Fine, good. Come in, son. Let's talk, right? (laughs) So... It's all good, but we we want to then be able to say, yes, there are reasons and here they are. If I don't have access to the reasons that I believe, I can't articulate those reasons for a third party. I can't say to somebody else, "Hey, look, you know, I hashed this out. I had to think about it. I had to rely on some experts. Let me show you what I've gleaned. You can't, Do that because your belief is just like a stimulus response. And so if you're going to give a reason for the hope that is in you, then you're going to have to know what that reason is. And that is one of the reasons that I think it's it's important that people, not that they become epistemologists, but that they understand that knowledge is something which When it is inferential, it's based on reasons from which you're doing the inference, and you have to be able to show to uh, at least some extent what those are and go backwards to things that are, let's just say, harder to challenge. And ultimately, I think they go back to things that are, as as I put it, a bit of technical terminology, they're incorrigible. Um, I also dedicated my first book to my wife, and I said, because she is incorrigible. So, dad jokes go <laughs> all directions here. Well,
0: I'm here for it. I mean, I'm a I'm a Christian dad, so basically means I have to live off of dad jokes. So, dad, yeah. Yep. Yeah, bad dad jokes are a thing. I'll say that my wife just looks at me. She's like, "What? What is wrong with you?" I'm like, "I look. I, I the thug life. I didn't choose it. It chose me. You know." That's right. So, <laughs> That's my so, excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Exactly. So, um, and uh, by the way, you can read more on. Uh, uh, Dr. Tim McGrew's case for internalism, uh, him and his wife actually wrote a book on it. Now, granted, I do suggest you get a little bit more familiar with the terminology before you just jump into that particular book. Would you say that's fair?
1: Yeah. Uh, if, if you want to, uh, there's an essay I can point you to in an anthology by Lewis Poiman that is a very simple introduction to this line of reasoning, uh, still sort of, you know, philosophy, major level reading, but it goes back into the background behind some of the reasons and traces a line of argument in favor of this sort of position, um, an internalist foundationalism and and a special kind of foundationalism at that. So, yeah, happy to give you that reference. And then you can, again, put that in the show notes if you feel yeah, like it.
0: I would love to do that. Uh, if you could send that to me, I'll shoot you a reminder uh, on that. And so that way we can just put it all in our description below. Uh, so yep. then now with all of this being said, so we've, of course, we've covered a lot of ground and, and that's the thing. That's always the hardest part with interviews is that you never feel like you can really get where like, oh, I would really love to dig into that. But it's more that this is why I tell people all the time. You can listen to podcasts all day long. You can listen to debates even. So mm-hmm. podcasts can give you surface level stuff. Sometimes a little deeper debates can get you even deeper, but nothing, nothing can substitute for actually getting dedicated and reading. Uh, it's just and doing your own due diligence and nothing can substitute for it. I did the podcast and debate thing for a long time until I realized that I was hearing the same things and not as rigorous as I needed. So, uh, with that being said, definitely do your research. And that's why we're going to put those in the notes below. So now we've covered, uh, why apologetics is important. What is apologetics, right? You know, defending the faith. And of course, uh, evidentialism, why is evidence important for your faith? And of course, epistemology, how do you know that, you know, and we say internalism is probably the, I, least you and i agree is the correct answer um not say that there's not other options available for christians and that they can't disagree but this isn't like a a matter of gospel here but i would say uh there are some implications that i have issue with with externalism um Mm -hmm. but uh that's not to say again like i said Plantiga. i love Plantiga. i actually have really enjoyed a lot of his work so um you can disagree, as we say at the church split all the time. You can disagree with somebody and not uh, hate them. <laughs> and uh, Weird, right? You can actually just have normal uh, conversations without tr- being like stone the heretic uh, or burn them with Greenwood.
1: Okay. I would probably already be burned if that were it because there's so <laughs> many people who disagree with me on so many things like, you know, who is safe? Once we light the match, I don't think that this is going to be uh, this is not, not a healthy place to hang out. So let's let's keep it. You know cordial and verbal and stop burning each other i take hey, a very I've, dim view of burning anybody at the stake i just do
0: yeah I, I agreed i mean i've been called a heretic by many people including the uh, dr james white uh so that's fun Ooh, I, I i wear that as right. like a badge of honor though i'm like he's called me this which means I'm credible. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So <laughs> I'm going to be. Or incredible
1: appeal. or something. Right.
0: Or uh, something. I, it's something. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it is. But anyway, so with that being said, now we've we've discussed those now. One of the things I would love to talk to you quickly about, and we we got to wrap up uh, quickly, but you is um, your view on you had a debate with an atheist on miracles and it was such a good debate. I loved it. I loved how even the atheist, uh, I forget his name, um, Zach Moore. Zach Moore. Yeah. He was actually really, I actually really enjoyed him. He was very likable. Uh, yeah. but even in his opening statement, he's like, yeah, I talked to my atheist colleagues essentially. And I told him I was going to debate Tim McGrew and they basically told me rest in peace. Uh, because, <laughs> and, uh, and then one of, the, one of the statements he said was, uh, that he's debating a, uh, A skeptical Christian on miracles. And he's like, so this is really hard as a skeptic. And it's because (laughs) you, you created a filter, uh, and a great way to approach how to, you know, Hey, what miracle claims are, are, what, uh, do what miracle claims seem like they're more legitimate evidence and which ones do not. And that's one of the things of that. So what I would encourage people to do as I, before we inquire, and I know you got to go here soon, but one thing is that. When it comes to miracles, you actually can see the way his epistemology and his evidentialism came together in that debate, and why it actually worked in your favor in the debate. Yeah. So, real quick, would you all talk a little bit about the, uh, the case for miracles? And because uh, I think that's like kind of a rubber meets the road. That that shows the pragmatism of what we're talking about.
1: Sure. So, what we're talking about here principally is the the central miracle of the Christian faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus. So you can't really be awake and read First Corinthians 15 and not realize that the resurrection is right down at the center of the earliest Christian witness. And of course, it's right there front and center in all of the gospels. So this is an incredibly important thing. And so here's what we want to do. Nobody wants to be a chump, or at least I hope not, right? Nobody wants to say, oh, I'll just believe any old thing. And if I'm deceived, hey, that's kind of cool. That's fun. I like being deceived. I don't, really think anybody goes out there hoping that today is the day he'll be deceived into believing something. (laughs) So we want to do this right. And there are lots of miracle accounts, thousands of accounts from various religious traditions, and you want to be able to sort through them. This is one of the points where I want to plug the older work in apologetics. And this is part of our maximal data approach to doing apologetics. So the great skeptic, David Hume is the author of a piece called Of Miracles. It's one of his essays published first in a collection of philosophical essays in 1748. And it drew forth quite a few replies, some of them quite excellent. One that I like a lot is by John Douglas, and it is called The Criterion. And what he does is he proposes some tests that we can apply to see whether a particular miracle claim is, let's just say, a good first place to start looking to see whether miracles happen. And so there are three criteria that he brings up right in the sort of the main section where he's discussing this. One of them is this, if the first report of the miracle occurs at a great distance in time from the time when it's supposed to have transpired, then there is reason to doubt. So in Philosopher's Life of Apollonius, which Bart Ehrman has referred to in some of his books, this is a work that wasn't written until well over a century after the death of the wandering first century sage that it purports to tell us about. So when that's the first place that we learn about the alleged miracles of Apollonius of Tiana, then that's a long gap of time right? All of the original eyewitnesses are dead now. Probably nobody is alive who met anybody who was alive when these things happened. Uh, And certainly all of the people in whose adult lifetime, whatever happened, are long off the scene. And we have no other record of anything that they wrote at the time. So this is it. This is like the first thing. Long distance in time, reason to doubt. Long distance in space, from the place where it's reported. Also a reason to doubt. If I tell you, hey, you know what? There's a miracle that just happened, but it's on a planet circling Alpha Centauri. Well, you're (laughs) out of luck for going and checking it out, right? I mean, that's a long way off, and you're not gonna go there. So I'm pretty safe if all I wanna do is make a claim and say, nah, nah, you can't disprove me. Well, okay, right? I mean, that was easy. So if it's far away in time, that's a reason to doubt. If it's far away in space, that's a reason to doubt. And then a third one, if it is advanced in such a milieu, such a context, that it might be allowed to pass without critical examination, that's a reason to doubt. So take, you know, Sathya Saibab, claims to be the reincarnation of a Hindu sage. He amasses billions of pounds sterling as a fortune. He uh, does little sleight of hand things. He makes little trinkets appear and hands them to people. I was sitting in a coffee shop today, talking with a friend, and over in the corner behind us, there was a guy who was a really, really talented magician. They were videotaping him doing card tricks, coin tricks. Uh, This guy was good at that. Like, that was very impressive. So... He pulled off some of these things and he would be very hard-pressed to find any Indian people in the audience who would be trying to disbelieve. Why? Well, in that context, there's already an established tradition that sages are reincarnated and so they kind of want to believe it. Now, contrast this with Christianity. Tacitus, the Roman historian, in his Annals, Book 15, Chapter 44, tells us that Christianity was checked for a moment by the killing of its founder, but this mischievous superstition spread again from Jerusalem, the place where, if Jesus was raised, that's where he was supposed to have been raised, spread from there all through the Roman Empire all the way to Rome. So Tacitus tells us, you know what? That's where it started out. It started right at ground zero. And it was announced by the apostles right within the time frame when this happened, when plenty of witnesses were on hand who could say what they had seen or hadn't seen, and people could ask them. And it was done in the teeth of the opposition. The Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities had just cooperated with some grumbling on Pilate's part in the crucifixion of the leader of this movement. And here these people are out on the street corners defiantly saying we must obey God rather than men. This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised again, whoa. So there's a hostile context. There's not a big gap in time and there's not a big gap in space. This is something that passes through all those filters. That doesn't mean that it's true. But what it does mean is that if you're looking for a miracle claim to test, this is a great place to start because there's not any of these obvious topic-neutral reasons to worry about it. So now we can get down to brass tacks and say, okay, well, just how good is that evidence, right? Let's talk about it.
0: Right, absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's how a filter like that works. I had three other uh, criteria as well, but uh, this is a brief introduction. And besides, John Douglas's book is the bomb. Uh, So I'll give you a link to that too.
0: All right. Yeah. I was going to say right when you referenced John Douglas's book, I'm like, you know, I've, I've heard of it. I just haven't read it myself, but it's definitely something I have to add. I have a gigantic reading list on Amazon that I just keep adding to. And then I just order books when I finish the next book and it just goes on and on and on and on. And right when I'm like, all right, I'm finally catching up. And uh, so, then I get, yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm about to bury you. I'm the guy who chases fleeing graduate students down the hallway Uh, who are already staggering under a stack of books. And I say, wait, I thought of three more. So this is definitely, (laughs) it is, but it's your lucky day because many of these older sources are available for nothing. Right. Uh, And and maybe this is something your listeners might want to check out. So we'll give a link to that too. Historicalapologetics.org is a website in progress where we're gradually putting up many, many hundreds of these great public domain works of historical apologetics and you can have access to them for free you can download them so douglas's criterion is in the public domain and uh we are past the letter d now so it's out
0: oh, It's that's up there. awesome and that's you can awesome.
1: download it so i'll give you a link to the website and then people could go and knock themselves out just you know hit that download <laughs> button all night long and uh and you you're your library won't weigh anymore when you're done, unless you're like me and you go out and you print them off and bind them and put them on your shelf. But you can just read them (laughs) electronically if you want to.
0: I have a real problem with that in general. I I like hard copies. So I've read digital. I'll read a book digitally sometimes and then I have to buy the the hard copy just because I can't help myself. Uh, But it is actually a thing where actually I found a lot of older sources are really good because and not saying that all new. I'm not. So I'm. I'm speaking very broadly. So I hope people will be gracious. Um, but because I have found sometimes with the newer stuff, some of the more modern mm-hmm. things, that sometimes there's a little bit of some revisionism if it depending on how the person might approach it, but like, well, like when I'm reading sometimes theology, I'll read like some older theology books, like history books, like this is where this came from, this is where this came from, this was built here. They have it all sourced. And then nowadays people, because they everyone wants to say that they are of the true church, right? My belief was from the ancient church. And so what ends up happening is that they end up trying to like kind of revise, the, revise well, no, see, this is how... This worked. I'm like, well, it's funny because I have older sources that seem like they're just way more objective. Like, they're just like, hey, I'm not trying. I don't have an axe to grind here. I'm just saying this happened here. This happened here. This was emphasized at this point, point in time and blah, 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 blah. Now here we are. And uh, so, anyway, old sources are not always bad. Sometimes I prefer them. Um, There's
1: a wonderful uh, essay by C.S. Lewis. I think it was contributed originally as uh, an introduction to a friend's translation of Athanasius on the Incarnation. Mm. where he talks about the value of reading old books and suggests that we should read at least as many old books as we do new books. Uh, The point is that all ages tend to have certain blind spots, Mm -hmm. uh, including past ages, but their blind spots are generally not the same as ours.
0: Right. And so if (laughs) all we
1: do is read people of our own time who have the same blind spots we do, we're not going to find them. Whereas if we read older books, they'll see right through our blind spots, and we'll probably see through theirs. But when they're seeing through ours and we're being corrected on something, we'll say, oh, oh, whoops, that was, uh, yeah, I needed that. So on the reading of old books, C.S. Lewis definitely had some good words to say there, and I am completely sold on this. In fact, if anybody in your listening audience happens to be headed down to New Orleans in January for the apologetics conference that defends 2023 at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I am going to be giving a plenary talk on the Wednesday of that conference on the lost world of historical apologetics. Mm. And I am going to be dropping amazing references to just a variety of things that we have forgotten.
0: Well, I sometimes awesome.
1: ask people, you know, if, if a lot of people our age love C.S. Lewis, Mm -hmm. And I like to ask them, do you think it would be a loss if your kids had never heard of C.S. Lewis? And most of them will say, well, yeah, but I'm taking care of that. I'm making sure that doesn't happen. Okay. Every generation has had Christian apologists of that stature. And we have forgotten most of them. Wow. So it's time to go and reclaim this lost world. And that's why I've started the Library of Historical Apologetics, to make absolutely free, available to anyone in the world, with an internet connection, you can get (laughs) these fabulous works of apologetics that are still incredibly useful and valuable. I'm not saying that new works of apologetics can't also be incredibly useful and valuable. I suggest that we read both. But if we read both, it will give us layers of defense against certain things, certain kinds of mistakes. So I see, for example, uh, very recently, someone is a New Testament scholar is saying, well, certain issues were just settled by David Friedrich Strauss. The older writers have some things to say about Strauss. You might want to say, see what Thomas Cooper had to say about Strauss, or Johannes Ebrard, or William Lindsay Alexander, Or Peter Bain, who picked up on the thread of what Strauss was doing with Hume and then nailed Hume on it. You might want to go back and read some of these older guys because they are really good. And they are not at all afraid to be a little confrontational and to say, all right, let's go to the mat on this. You think Strauss was hot stuff. Let's talk about how he accounts for the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Let's go piece by piece. Let's look at this. Mm-hmm. And it is an eye opener for sure.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I this uh, library of historical apologetics sounds like it's definitely going to be something that's very valuable um, for people all, all over the place because not everyone, of course, can afford to purchase, you know, the next $50 Uh, edition of Reasonable Faith by Dr. William Lane Craig or anything like that. So A dozen
1: years ago or so, I had someone approach me and say, man, I'd I'd really like to know more about apologetics, but my life situation does not permit me to go to seminary. So I'm just trying to figure out how can I do this? I said, well, is it knowledge that you want? And he said, yes. I said, in my best Larry the Cucumber Voice, have we got a show for you? Right. dude. just <laughs> this was uh <laughs> winning. <laughs> yes. Um, that you know, if you want knowledge, we've got it. And I gave him a syllabus of readings, which included some modern things and a lot of good things from history. And he sat down and he started reading. And to this date, he has read dozens of key classical works of apologetics from the historical archives. And he is a treasurer and a just valued partner now in so many things that Lydia and I are doing because he's educated himself. And you know what? When the newest fad comes around of, oh, the castles can't be reliable because of X, he's already been inoculated. Hmm. And it's the historical work that does the job really, really well. And it's all free
0: man i am where i'm i'm gonna go check that out literally after this call i am going to go up pull up my laptop and check it out because i am now very jazzed um so well real quick i know you got to go so what i'm going to do is i'm just going to tell people to definitely check out dr tim McGrew's work go check out his debates you'll find them very fun and he's just a likable guy uh i can say that for you i'll say that for you so that way you can remain humble uh (laughs) Yeah, there you go, yeah, yeah. Um, So, and with that being said, guys, make sure you check out his work. Um, I really appreciate Dr. Tim McGrew for taking the time to come on the uh, church split to have this conversation with us. Um, And I think that there's a lot of valuable things here and maybe some of you will understand why I emphasize this so much, even though we do a lot of theology, and it's a very much been lately a theologically focused channel. And that's because I feel like theology is very important in how we understand God. But my heart is apologetics, and uh, before I keep jumping into the world of uh, of worldview and defending the faith uh, publicly and continually, I want to make sure I'm very well equipped, which is why. I don't uh, have a bunch of stuff out on it, only some things here and there. So, But guys, I hope this gives you at least a starting place. And uh, Dr. Vigru, really appreciate you coming on to The Church Split. If you guys haven't already, like and subscribe to the channel. Also, people, your wife has a a channel that people can go check out. And uh, so what is the name of her channel? Because you don't have one personally, do you? I do not.
1: So she's got a uh, a YouTube channel and then they're pushing out some podcasts now Mm. so she's also got just the Lydia McGrew podcast you know very simply named uh not not hiding uh so that takes content that was originally produced in video form and it just presents the audio form of it so if what you want is the mp3 to listen to as you're commuting or driving or just lounging around and you wanted something to be listening to then you can get that in podcast form as well we'll send you some links for those things and yeah lots of good content coming out there occasionally i slip in and do something for that so you'll find me reading one of these critics of strauss as a a recent uh thing that came out just as a tidbit on the youtube channel so all this little stuff you can find out there and we are just trying to do our bit to bring people's attention back to really excellent lines of argument that for completely contingent reasons have been forgotten
0: Awesome. Well, if everyone go ahead Check that out and I really appreciate your guys' work. I know it's been influential in my life and I know it's been influential in the people I've had conversations with because that's the thing with this sort of, thi- uh, this sort of thing, right? It's it's ministry, so it, it replicates and it duplicates. And so as so their work has influenced me, it's allowed me to influence others and on and on it goes. And same thing, I hope and pray the church split has done the same for some of you. But anyway, guys, uh, if you haven't already, like and subscribe to the channel, go check out Lydia Micker's channel. Uh, you're, it, is far more qualified than my nonsense. So, uh, with that being said, guys, take care and God bless.
1: Whereas when you went to bed the night before, you didn't even know exactly what the ground state of anything was. So, yeah, they're, they're calling. They're calling. They want. They want you to believe this. Uh, so.